right here on WBAI in New York. Welcome to Driving Forces. This is our weekly show about politics and policy and a focus on city, state, and local and national politics, the issues that matter to you. I'm Jeff Simmons. Now, I was off last week, and my lovely co-host, Celeste Katz, uh, led the show last week, and she joins me today. Hey, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing fine. Good, good, good. So we have a big show today. Obviously, there's a, a lot going on here, uh, especially with uh, what's going on with the measles outbreak. Uh, how are we sounding today? Yeah, in fact, I had just uh, reached out to the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene to ask about uh, the, lo- uh, the latest statistics, and they reported to me that the health department has about 20 inspectors out there auditing uh, student vaccination records and 15 disease detectives uh, also out in the field speaking with uh, potential uh, people who were potentially exposed um, at uh, yeshivas. This has been an ongoing concern. I'm sure many of our listeners have uh, been aware of the mayor's announcement earlier this week, uh, which has caused uh, quite a stir here in New York City. So I guess the, uh, you know, one of the issues has been whether there are uh, certain communities that have been more reluctant or not, uh, have not traditionally wanted to vaccinate children, I think, in the, um, in the Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox communities, for example, uh, the authorities have had to step in and uh, encourage people or order people to get their kids vaccinated before sending them to schools and even put out uh, a warning about fining people if they do not get their children attended to now obviously this is this might be a cause of uh, of some controversy uh interestingly enough too there's sort of a bigger issue about this aside from health there's always this discussion about the what's called the anti-vax or anti-vaxxer movement and uh what's really behind that is it a concern about about children's health is it a concern uh, that's based on old and unreliable studies uh, some people even go into into the uh, into the realm of conspiracy theory, frankly, when uh, when talking about this. Yeah, and in fact, you know, a few weeks ago, I believe it was when Rockland County was banning uh, uh, or barring unvaccinated kids from indoor public spaces, and that was you know one of the first steps. Now we're going to go to our first guest in just a few moments, but before that, I do want to go to our public service announcement uh, for folks who are listening um, that there is, we have launched WBAI has launched the More Than Mike's campaign because WBAI needs about ten thousand dollars. That's it, just that to complete our new master control studio. I'm not going to show you a photo of where Celeste and I are sitting in right now, but the one that I just sat in down the hall from us is looking more and more beautiful every day, but we need $10,000. So far it was built by calling in a number of favors, I'm told. Uh, with volunteer technical uh, and, and expertise and helpful vendors, but we really need uh, $10,000 in equipment before it can be completed. So we're asking 200 listeners, you out there who are listening, to please donate $50 each to help us reach the goal to complete a much-updated broadcast studio. You can help by going online to give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org, and you just have to click on More Than Mics or call 516-620-3602. Yeah, and actually you can even help us out uh, just by using your smartphone. Just text WBAI to 41444. That's text WBAI to 41444. And Jeff is right. The new studio is looking really good. I'm very, very excited to get in there, or I am equally excited to get out of here. But um, uh, we really certainly would appreciate your help. Again, that pledge number 516-620-3602. And so with that, we're going to bring on our first guest, uh, Celeste? Okay, great. Oh, good, good, good. We have him on the line. Okay, so our first guest today here on Driving Forces is 
Eric Adams. He's served as Brooklyn Borough President since 2014. He's a former police officer with New York City Transit and the NYPD. And uh, when I met him, he was a New York State Senator. He represented the 20th District. And throughout his career, he's been an advocate for Brooklyn in a lot of different ways, encouraging job growth and investments throughout the borough. So, uh, Mr. Borough President, pleasure to uh, have you on the program. Thank you very much, and I am going to send in my $50 uh, donation to this station. I feel like I grew up on WBAI throughout my years with 100 Blacks in law enforcement, state senator, and now Bob president. And if I could just say on the onset, as I move throughout the borough and the city, we need to always remind ourselves that we're an amazing place in New York. Not only do we have a large amount of talent, but also innovation. And we need to remember and remind ourselves of that. And it's troubling when 40% of New Yorkers uh, have a self-sufficiency deficit. We just are not getting our money's worth in our agencies, in our city. And we need to do that to move people forward and move people ahead to middle class and really the backbone of this city. Well, thank you. First of all, thank you very, very much for your contribution. And we will, Celeste and I will also definitely have you here in the studio once, uh, you know, maybe we'll have a ribbon cutting ceremony on our show and have you in here live that day. (laughs) So, uh, Borough President, uh, at the opening of the show, Celeste and I have talked about the mayor's announcement earlier this week amid the fact that uh, uh, there are 285 confirmed cases of measles. Um, what do you think of the city's response uh, and you know what uh, and uh, the actions that were taken even late last year when they started I guess the first phase of this which they conceded wasn't working in banning unvaccinated kids from going to school so you know give us a little uh, sense of your reaction to the announcement this week uh, it was a good announce announcement I thought it was appropriate and we need to be clear that many people in the uh, communities that were, acknowledged through dealing with some of the outbreaks, particularly in Williamsburg, uh, many of the leaders on the ground, they were doing what was right. I spoke with Rabbi Niederman, one of the leaders in the area, and we were sharing ideas months ago, and I spoke with him again today. It's clear that there's a small number of people who don't quite understand the vaccination process, how measles come about, what are some of the dangers, and there were a lot of rumors out there. And it's imperative that the city realize that we communicate through various various modes. And we need to ensure those communities that don't read our daily tabloids, they get the information at the same time. I'm a big believer that the new success is in the peace and the new currency is knowledge. And it's imperative that we get clear knowledge on the ground to everyday people. People must be vaccinated. It's not about what happens to the individual. It's about what happens to the whole. And when you have a child that's not vaccinated, it impacts the whole. And the mayor did the right thing of sending a very clear message on that. And Borough President, one of the things we were talking about a little earlier as well was this idea that uh, resistance to having children vaccinated sort of goes beyond any one particular religious group or uh, any one geographic location or any one, say, race or ethnicity. There's a, there's been this anti-vaxxer movement in the United States, and uh, it's very hard to convince people sometimes that some of the science that that movement is based on, that the idea that vaccines can be harmful to children can cause conditions like autism are, are not really valid science. Have, have you run into any of that at all? Like, have people pushed back and said, well, look, I don't want to hurt my child by giving them this vaccine. It's, it's not right as a parent. And, and I, I am a strong believer that parents have the right to decide what happens within the confines of their homes and with their children. I believe that, and I will never move away from that. But it is not about the individual family. It's about the whole. The science has proven that vaccinations uh, will do a great deal in preventing outbursts such as uh, measles and mumps and others. And if we're going to put our family members in the environment of the whole, then we have to participate with the rules of the whole. If you want to sit down and keep your child homeschooled and not allow them to go out, uh, that's up to you. But you can contaminate someone with measles four days, three to four days out from when the actual physical presence of the measles uh, is there, the rash is actually exposed. And so I respect the right of the parent, but I also understand when you live in a society where we must protect the whole, 
they have to be also obligated to follow the rules. But there's something else that's important in this conversation also, as I heard today, uh, that someone actually showed or display a level of anti-Semitic behavior when a young person got on the bus. Uh, on the bus. This is what was reported. We cannot allow uh, any type of urgency uh, to turn into a form of hate of any group, and we, so we must be forever diligent and mindful that it is not about demonizing entire communities, as you indicated. It's about ensuring that people do what's right to protect the whole. And thank you for those comments. I want to segue to uh, another health issue. Uh, recently, you announced a mindfulness program uh, in, uh, in uh, I believe it started in East Brooklyn, but was expanded. Can you describe this pilot for us and also the expansion? Because I found this really interesting. Yeah, this was something that was not just born out of one day I woke up and thought about meditation and mindfulness. When I left the police department, uh, literally I know that there was a major impact on some of the emotions that I displayed because of just years watching some of the most horrific things that man can do to man. And you think that you buried it somewhere in your psyche, but in reality you, you, you have it. Uh, PTSD is not something that's unique to soldiers on a battlefield. The body does not know the difference between experiencing trauma for real or thinking about trauma. You still have a reaction in your mind and in your body. And when I, <laughs> excuse me, when I spoke to those who practice yoga and mindfulness and saw how we were successful with soldiers and how successful I was in my meditation twice a day in the morning and the evening, I understood that our children and many of them experience trauma every day. But before we can tell a young child they must read and write and learn biology, we need to deal with the trauma that they may have experienced at home. It could be possibly domestic violence. They could have lost a loved one through violence, gang recruitment as they walk to school, uh, going in a store and having someone follow them around all the time. All of this leads to trauma, and it gets in the way of their learning. So what we did, we, we're sending away a large number of, of administrators and principals to go and learn mindfulness and yoga, then come back, sort of the trainers training and teaching others, come back and allow our students to have 10 to 15 to 20 minutes of yoga before they start their day. Our goal is to have it throughout the entire educational system in Brooklyn and allow children to go inside and heal. Like I said, the new success is in a piece, and we need to attach both the academic as well as the emotional stability. So it's going to teach everything from breathing exercises to stress release and any other form of yoga. And when you look at the research, the research is clear that it helps in how children adapt, how they learn, how they complete tasks. It is a great way to start the day. And I I'm curious about how people are taking that because it may seem like a new or, you know, we're describing it here as a new addition to sort of uh, holistic education. But, of course, it's a very old practice. Are people uh, interested in it or do they feel like no kids should just be you know, hitting the books, so to speak, and, and going on with sort of rote memorization and traditional uh, methods of learning? That's such a great question because you find that we have been doing so many things incorrectly, mainly because they were tradition. And we must be bold enough to step outside tradition. Everyone knows my story for the most part around health care. I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and I was losing my sight. Doctors told me I was going to, going to go blind in a year, as well as lose some fingers and toes. If I didn't step out of the traditional methods that were being used to live with diabetes and go into a new road of reversing diabetes, I would have been blind. And instead, I reversed my diabetes just because of the lifestyle changes, the determination not to allow drugs to cover up my symptoms. What we're doing in Brooklyn is that we are moving beyond the safe zones of tradition and looking at the science and allowing the science to match the policies and practice the science clearly states that mindfulness, yoga, breathing, all of these things that we took for granted were right in front of our face, and they were in traditional societies. Eric Adams didn't invent this. This was in societies for many years and have been proven successful, and we want to implement it to help our children have a well-balanced education. 
So I want to go to another topic. Given your background prior to uh, becoming the uh, Brooklyn Borough President uh, in your law enforcement career, uh, put on that cap for a moment here, what do you think of the uh, criminal justice reforms that are going on in the state? Is the legislature going far enough? Are there certain ones that you disagree with or you feel that they, uh, that they have not gone far enough with? Exciting times, and we are having real conversations about uh, criminal justice reform. I'm extremely sensitive uh, to this topic because we can't be merely reactionary. We must be um, very thoughtful because the prerequisite to to uh, prosperity is public safety. And we can never return to the days when we had no radio signs in our cars and we were dealing with real violence. And I don't want my son to grow up in the city that I grew up in and how violence was really the norm. We normalized violence. We were used to it. But with that said, there are places in the criminal justice system that has historically been unfair. There's no reason for a nonviolent offender to sit in jail with a high bail. That makes no sense. Uh, those who commit violent predatory crimes like robbery, a homicide, kidnap, or serious felonious assault, they should be held on bail, and, and particularly those who are repeated offenders. We need to zero in and focus on them. But if you have a misdemeanor arrest, which the, some of the reforms are doing, they're moving away from using jail as bail as a way of holding someone in, particularly um, on those low-level misdemeanor uh, incidents. And I am uh, really happy to see that. I'm happy to see with the Kings County District Attorney and the Manhattan District Attorney, they are both uh, looking at not prosecuting a low-level marijuana arrest. I, I applaud uh, D.A. Gonzalez for looking at how do we repeal um, the uh, records of those who were at one time arrested for low-level arrest. Many people know that when I was in the state Senate, I led the call uh, with the previous uh, senator on repealing the Rockefeller drug laws because they were horrific. And so I believe we're moving in the right direction, but we must move there in a very cautious and a very well-thought-out manner so that we do not harm what we have done thus far around public safety. If you're just joining us, this is Driving Forces on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live on WBAI.org. Uh, Jeff Simmons and Celeste Katz here talking to Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Uh, and Borough President, sort of related to that, uh, on the bail issue, uh, uh, I was at a forum recently with the district attorney and with some uh, some other people who are involved in criminal justice reform, and they were talking a lot about the issue of uh, uh Parole reform, specifically how people get uh, people get stuck back in Rikers Island for stuff like missing a curfew or uh, missing a meeting, as opposed to committing another crime. Um, do you think that that's uh, Do you think that that's an issue that uh, should be addressed? And just generally, also, just curious, how do you feel about Rikers Island? Rikers Island is a very complicated conversation, and we need to really uh, look at. Um, how we're going to close Rikers, but you can't, um, if you have the culture of violence, you can't move the culture of violence in another institution and think that you can just, just displace where it is. Uh, I'm concerned about move, moving extremely violent juveniles into uh, uh, residential communities, uh, particularly if they're dealing with some serious emotional issues that they need uh, the necessary uh, care and the necessary um, treatments for. So we have to be extremely careful uh, when we talk about uh, just closing the institution and just stating that whoever's in Rikers Island should not no longer be in a jail environment. If, when we close Rikers, we need to downsize the jail population. I think some of the bail reform is going to do that. I believe some of the speedy trial is going to do that. I think some of the things we're doing around criminal discovery some of the reforms, I think that is going to uh, assist us in doing that. But now we have to talk about where we're going to house those a low number of people who are extremely violent, and we cannot romanticize violence. There are mm -hmm. some people who repeatedly commit crime uh, for one reason or another, and I think many of them is connected to some real mental health disorders that have gone undiagnosed and untreated. Something I was surprised to find out 
the high number of people on Rikers Island who are dyslexic. If we're not catching and preventing those who are dyslexic, dyslexic from getting the necessary help they need when it, they are in lower grades, they are moving to a life of, of violence. We need to start thinking about how do you go to the core of a problem and resolve the problem and not only respond to it. So, Borough President, we've got about two minutes left, but one thing I do want to bring up to just lighten it up for a moment is I checked your change.org petition online and saw that you're up to over 100,000 signatures to name the Brooklyn Municipal Building after Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Tell me about this effort. I know we've only got about a minute and a half left now. (laughs) We're extremely excited about it. Why not, Ruth? Uh, She's the right person at the right time. Uh, Just as we had... Um, the notorious B.I.G., we have the notorious uh, R.B.G. <laughs> you know, we're excited about it. We think it's going to happen. We are optimistic. 100,000 signatures. People respond. Unbelievable career. Several-time cancer survivor. Leader of women's rights issue. What is a better place to do right in the borough of Brooklyn, her home, and name the municipal building after her? And your future, after your term ends, what's next for you? Uh, my goal, I've always stated, I wanted to be the mayor of the city of New York. You've got to follow the process. I must show the New Yorkers what I can do as a leader. I've provided the public safety in the city as a legislator and now as a borough president, the third largest city in America. It was an independent city. Uh, there's a process. And one of the part of the process I dislike, and that is the money-raising process. Although I raise more money than other candidates with a lower dollar amount, on average, and the most donors, I just think is wrong. We should not have money in politics. We should not be raising outside money. We should go to a 100% public finance commit uh, a campaign process so people can talk to voters and not to donors. So, Celeste and I will definitely have you back on as a mayoral candidate. How can people learn more about you and your yeah, actually, office? Actually, can you make the announcement on our program, please? <laughs> yeah, that, 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 is, that is a call I'm sure my campaign manager would make. <laughs> how, can people learn, how can people learn more about your office? I think uh, you can Google and go right to our website. We have a great deal of information on our website, and we have many events taking place at Borough Hall. People will be excited to see how we've turned that building into the people's house, and every day there's a new event taking place several at one time. And we think if you go online and look at our website, uh, they will see it. It's it's, um, uh, brooklyn.usa. It's brooklyn.usa.org. And on Twitter, it's BP Eric Adams, because I already called that up, so I have that ready to go. So we want to, Borough President, we want to thank you so much for joining Celeste Katz and me here on WBAI. Thank you very much to both of you. And I will send my $50 in. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. So uh, in a few moments, we're going we're gonna to call and get our next guest on the line. But one of the other topics that's going to be creeping up Actually, it already feels like it's creeping up is the census. Right, right, which is a very, very big deal. Um, And if you haven't experienced the census before, of course, this is something that happens with the federal government every 10 years, which is what they try to figure out how many people here in the United States, who they are, what they're up to, how they're living, and so on. And this is really important. This is not just sort of random information. This information is used to to allocate federal funding, uh, to tell us about, uh, you know, changes in demographics uh, to tell us where there are new needs or where problems are, are developing or being fixed, where uh, communities are growing, and so on. It is a very, very big deal. And of course, part of this uh, uh, this this coming census cycle, there's been a big issue about whether or not they should ask people about whether they are U.S. citizens. Obviously, the Trump administration is a little excited about doing that, but there are some people who might not feel comfortable uh, speaking to a census taker or answering uh, questions by mail if they are not U.S. citizens for the obvious reason that people are afraid that you know, if they give out that information, ICE might show up at their door with a different set of questions like, uh, are you ready to go with us? So uh, we, we are uh, and that is a question many people do do not want to hear. Obviously, immigration is sort of aside from this, but that is one issue that really, really could affect uh, the accuracy 
of the census. And again, this is only once every 10 years. So if you blow it this time, it's a decade before you can before you can rectify that problem. Yeah, it's one of the challenges that I'm sure our next guest is going to address. Our next guest where we're going to bring on now is Julie Menon, who was appointed in January as the director of the census for New York City. She also serves as the city's executive assistant corp counsel for strategic advocacy. I've known Julie for years. She's a prominent lead. She was a prominent leader in lower Manhattan. And most recently, she served as as uh, the commissioner of the mayor's office of media and entertainment, and uh, before that, the commissioner of the Department of Consumer Affairs. Welcome to Driving Forces, Julie. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be with you both. So give us uh, an idea of what, um, of what your office is doing, uh, to, you know, in preparation for, you know, the official count to begin next year. Well, we really have an unprecedented challenge, as you were discussing before, in large part because for the first time in 70 years, uh, the Trump administration has added a question asking, are you a U.S. citizen? This question has not been on the census since 1950, and it's a clear attempt to intimidate immigrant communities across the city. And when we're a city of 38 percent immigrants, we can see the repercussions that would have. Um, we in the city law department are plaintiffs on the lawsuit that um, is now going to oral argument before the Supreme Court in a couple weeks, along with the attorney general's office and many others. But that is really one of the big challenges we have. What we are doing is we are building an, a city office of the census, which is really unprecedented. The city's never had any kind of outreach like this before. And we're going to be partnering with dozens and dozens of community organizations across the city houses of worship, civic groups, uh, labor, and many other stakeholders to get the word out and to really make sure that we get every single New Yorker counted. And Celeste noted the citizenship question, but what else is going to be different uh, in this census? What are some of the new things that people should be prepared for? Well, for the first time, you can answer the census online and by phone. And so, in fact, the Federal Census Bureau is going to be sending out a mailer on March 12th of next year. That's the first communication you'll get from the Federal Census Bureau. And 80% of New Yorkers will be encouraged to answer the question online, and there'll be a computer code that you can enter and immediately fill it out. Um, you can also answer by phone, which, is, again, is a new element, because traditionally it was just you mail in the census and you're done. You'll still be able to fill it out by mail, but they're really going to be encouraged everyone to, to the fullest extent possible, answer by phone. You can literally answer on your smartphone. You can go to the public library and fill it out. We're going to be creating pop-up centers all around the city so that people will have access um, to many different ways to answer the census. And if I could just say why it's important, um, because you know, traditionally the messaging around the census has been it's in the Constitution, it's your civic duty, it's the law. And that is why in 2010, in my opinion, <laughs> The city had a very low response rate of 61.9% of people who self-responded to the census versus a national average of 76%. There's so much at stake that we have to message out. There's $800 billion of federal funds each and every year that the federal government allocates across the country for programs that depend on the census. Everything from public education, public housing, uh, free lunch programs, senior centers, Medicaid, infrastructure. It's so important that we get this right. And if we have the kind of response rate that we did um, 10 years ago, we're just leaving money on the table. And as far as, uh, do you feel like there are specific programs that we've missed out on in the past that uh, we'd like to sort of get back into the game with in terms of the, the lower census response the last time around? Well, absolutely. There are actually really interesting studies about this. I mean, there's a whole body of academic research on the impacts of um, census response. But there are specifically 55 different programs that uh, the federal government allocates for that are census-dependent. New York State receives $73 billion a year in funding on programs that depend on the census. And so that's what we really need to focus on the messaging. We need to explain to people, look, if you don't take the five minutes to fill this form out, we're really losing um, valuable funding for our communities across the city. But it's even more than that, and I say this as a mom, is the New York City Health Department, when there's a crisis, such as there is now with a measles outbreak, they're looking at census data to determine how many children are in that neighborhood, how many vaccines need to be ordered. And in 2010, one million children 
nationwide were simply left out of the census. They weren't counted. 400,000 of those million children were Latino. So we have to make sure we have an accurate count, obviously, for funding. But it's also about political representation. We stand to lose up to two congressional seats in an undercount. And so you, these are the stakes literally couldn't be higher. And you, know, mention, you mentioned 2010, and in addition to 2010, I believe uh, the mayor had also challenged, you know, the earlier uh, – uh, mm-hmm. The earlier results are, you know, are we just expecting that uh, no matter what we're going, this is going to lead to a challenge because inevitably it would, if we're successful, get us more funding and representation. Right. But in the past, I mean, New York City hasn't been successful in, in challenging. They challenge, but it's very hard to win on those challenges. So we have to instead, it's our belief, we've got to really put in the community outreach piece of this and make sure that everyone is self-responding. Self-response is the most accurate uh, data that we can get. So basically, from March 12th of next year to mid-May, that's the so-called self-response period. We're going to literally be in an eight-week sprint to get every New Yorker counted. But the good news is because you can um, respond online and by phone, it makes it so much easier to be able to respond. And there are going to be many different avenues and mechanisms by which New Yorkers can you either go to their public library branch or their house of worship. We're going to have uh, pop-up computer centers all around the city where people can go in and, and quickly fill out the information. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. Celeste Katz and Jeff Simmons here talking to Julie Menon about the census, the 2020 census coming up. And uh, one of the questions, I want to go back for just a second to something that you mentioned about people being able to respond online and the importance of getting as many people to to get out there and do this themselves rather than tracking them down. Um, It would seem to me that that would sort of help the the responses in favor of people who have better access to technology who have leisure mm-hmm. time to to actually fill out this sentence who uh, the um the census who don't have a fear of immigration issues or citizenship issues i mean is there is there a worry at all that that the results could be skewed in that way and and how does the city deal with that well, Celeste, it's a great question, but the fact of the matter is you can still respond in the traditional way of mailing in your census form. You also can call by phone. Look, we've got places in the city that do not have Internet access, Internet deserts. We know that, and that's why we're working to set up these pop-up centers in the 219 public library branches and many other places so there will be a multitude of access points for people to be able to uh, fill out the census. And that, that's going to be, you know, key and, and critical. So when it comes to funding, advocates were calling for, I believe it was about $40 million, but the mm-hmm. state budget is uh, uh, including about $20 million. Is this enough? And, you know, and if there's not more invested by the state, is the city planning to allocate more within its uh, FY2020 budget? Well, well look, we're We're continuing to work and partner very, very closely with the state on the census piece because there needs to be incredibly close coordination. We're in the process right now of putting together the city budget. As you know, that process is winding its way forward. I can tell you um, absolutely that the mayor is very committed to the census, as is the Speaker of the City Council. And I think the great news for the city is there's like really mission alignment there in terms of the... Uh, recognition of how important it is that we get proper funding to do this outreach because of the citizenship question, because of the fact that of this online component, which is completely new. Um, So there are a lot of different factors that make it more urgent than ever that we get this right. So in the announcement back in uh, January about your hiring, the mayor had said that you would be, quote, protecting New York from the Trump administration's attacks on a fair census effort. So are you ready for that? Absolutely. I mean, I really think, and I know it's trite to say the stakes couldn't be higher, and we hear that phrase all the time, but I really believe that. I mean, you know, both Jeff and Celeste, I've been involved in, in government and and issues for a long, long time. And I really believe this is the most important project simply because it, it, it affects over 55 absolutely critical programs that New Yorkers depend on, that they depend on um, so much in terms of uh, their quality of life and, and resources. And so we can't get under change in that regard. 
but it's also about our democratic principles are at stake. I mean, let's be clear, this citizenship question is is wholly unlawful, which is why the law department, we sued on it and won at the district court level. But it's, it's even more so, it's fundamentally about disenfranchisement. It's about trying to defund and disenfranchise our immigrant communities and communities of color and switch the funding to red states that um, really, when this is our funding. So that's why we're very focused on the work that we're doing, and I think it is absolutely mission critical. And I don't know if this is a variation on a theme, but I want to come back to it for just a second because I do think it's really important. How do you convince people that there is no danger in responding to the census? I'm so glad, Celeste, you're asking that question because it's a very important question. So Title 13 of the U.S. Code protects the confidentiality of census. It actually imposes up to five years prison sentence and up to $250,000 fine on any federal employee who shares census data. It absolutely cannot be shared. And that um, penalty basically is a lifetime ban on that federal employee. So if they leave the government tomorrow but share census data, that ban still uh, applies to them. And Title 13, since its true enactment, has never been broken. It's ironclad. So we need to make sure and assure immigrant communities across the city that their information is protected. And we don't want a situation where communities are not getting the resources that they deserve. In 2010, the neighborhood that had the highest participation rate in the census um, was Washington Heights and Inwood. And they did an outstanding job organizing their community because they fully recognized what was at stake in terms of if they didn't respond and, and just what the implications of that would be. So, Julie, we've got about two minutes left, and uh, I'd like you to just remind our listeners about the timeline over the next year when they'll start to see something in the mail. Just give them uh, us a sense. Absolutely. Well, a couple things. One, if you're interested in working for the census, the Federal Census Bureau is hiring. They're hiring managers. And they're hiring 22,000 door knockers, which is both part and full-time work. And we want to make sure that it's New Yorkers who are being hired for those jobs. In terms of the timeline, people will hear from the Federal Census Bureau on March 12th. You'll get your first mailing. If you don't fill that out, you'll get another mailing. If you don't fill that out, you'll get another mailing and then one more. And if you don't do anything then, then someone will knock on your door. We never want it to get to that point. We want every New Yorker to please fill the census out the second that you get the form. And if people have information and they want to reach out to us, they can reach us on our website at nyc.gov backslash census. Julie Menon, thank you so much for joining us. We will definitely have you back next year uh, when this all kicks off. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks so much for having me. So as you can tell, we've been focusing on a number of issues today, and we're uh, going to bring up another guest uh, who we just booked uh, earlier today based on what uh, what we started talking about at the outset of the show. Yeah, so coming kind of full circle here, and I really do think this is important. I'm really glad, Jeff, that, that you thought of uh, getting our third guest here. We're getting him on the line in a moment, but just because this, um, just because this issue of the measles outbreak is such a big deal, and whether you're for vaccine or whether you are part of this anti-vaccination uh, group movement, uh, whatever you whatever you uh, would like to define that as, uh, you know these are these are our kids at stake. These are uh, you know our neighbors here that are are involved. This is not something that's far away from us. There are already people. Uh, you know, again, the public health emergency was declared on Tuesday, and they've uh, uh, ordered mandatory vaccinations. Uh, in uh, certain areas of Brooklyn, particularly in the Williamsburg section. So coming on now, I think we have, oh great, to talk to us uh, about this is uh, New York City Councilman Mark Levine. He represents the 7th District in Northern Manhattan. He's the chair of the Council Committee on Health. He's also a member of the Progressive Caucus. Uh, he has uh, somebody that I've known for quite a while and interviewed a bunch of times. We're very, very interested to hear what he has to say about uh, this. He lives, since we were just mentioning, as a matter of fact, Washington Heights. He lives up there with his wife and his two kids, and he could do this interview in Spanish if he wanted to, but I think we're going to do it in English. <laughs> so, Councilman, a, uh, a pleasure to hear your voice. 
Well, it's, it's, it's wonderful to be back on. Thank you so much. So tell us about uh, what's going on with uh, with measles right now. Obviously, we have uh, the, the city and the mayor and health authorities encouraging people to get vaccines, threatening people with fines if they don't. I mean, are there, first of all, I just want to ask you just to, to be a devil's advocate. So you tell somebody, uh, you know, get this vaccine, get your kids vaccinated or I'm, I'm going to fine you a thousand bucks. And they say, go ahead, fine me. I'm not going to pay. You know, we can let that drag on forever. I mean, how 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 well equipped are we to to deal with this problem? Well, we are in the midst of the worst outbreak of, of measles in this city for three decades. We have now logged um, close to 300 cases. We are averaging five to six new cases a day, overwhelmingly children, almost entirely children. This is an outbreak driven by one thing parents who refuse to vaccinate their kids. They are ignoring science. They are believing conspiracy theories about the alleged harmful effects of the measles vaccine, and they're putting their kids and other kids in jeopardy. The facts are that uh, the MMR vaccine, it's a single vaccine for measles, mumps, and rubella, has been extensively tested and proven to be safe, and it protects children against measles in the great majority of cases, uh, a disease which is highly contagious. Um, you, can, you can catch it just by being in the same room as somebody else. And we've had an outbreak centered in the Orthodox Jewish communities of Williamsburg and Borough Park in Brooklyn. And uh, we have been taking um, continually more aggressive action to try and contain this with the most dramatic step yet offered this week by the health commissioner declaring an emergency that mandates vaccination for all people living in the affected zip codes. It will be difficult to enforce. That's true. Um, this is a way of raising awareness and sounding the alarm and uh, expressing the seriousness of this current outbreak. This law has not been evoked um, since nearly 100 years ago when the city faced a very bad smallpox outbreak. Um, that should uh, tell everyone the seriousness of the situation. Um, and our message remains that everybody should get vaccinated, that it is a safe vaccine, that you owe it to your kids and to other people's children to do the right thing, follow science, and uh, protect yourself and your family. And how do you, I, I noticed that you've been trying to push back against some of the uh, anti-vax commentary on your Twitter feed, for example, but, uh, you know, how do you convince people uh, that this is, in fact, uh, the right thing to do for not only for themselves and their families, but for their uh, their neighbors and relatives and so on? Uh, you know, what was it like last week? I was busy getting cancer from wind farms or something. I mean, it's like, a, oh my God. You, well, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk going around here, and I'm just curious as to, uh, how do you uh, how do you think is the best way to convince people, especially especially if they honestly believe that they are acting out of concern for the welfare of their children? Right. Uh, first, we have to share the science with people. This question has been repeatedly, repeatedly researched, including a massive study released just in the last few weeks that included more than 600 children as participants in the study. Uh, showing absolutely no link between this vaccine and autism. That's a common conspiracy theory. We have to share the science. We have an added challenge in this outbreak because there are um, extremely irresponsible players who are targeting um, parents in the Orthodox Jewish community, um, often with communication in Yiddish, um, drawing on alleged Jewish, Jewish sources, claiming that the vaccine is not kosher, and um, there has just been a, a wide array of rabbinic authorities here in New York, in Israel, which have weighed in on this and said not only is uh, the MMR vaccine permissible, it is actually uh, mandated that families provide this protection to their kids. So um, uh, there, there's simply no, no foundation uh, in Jewish law, according to a, a wide array of rabbinic experts. But we have to counter the propaganda with culturally appropriate, uh, linguistically appropriate material, and that's a big challenge. There are some heroic folks on the ground in 
Borough Park in Williamsburg who are doing that. But the fight continues uh, for an epidemic that continues to rage on. You know, and I just read a little earlier that uh, there is a gentleman who's already announced that he's going to be filing suit against the city for overreach. Your thoughts on that? Look, the city's health code has established our right in cases of emergency to mandate vaccinations for the benefit benefit of public health. Um, I, I, I can't assess the validity of his lawsuit, but the law on this is quite clear. It's been used judiciously, only in extreme circumstances. We are in such a circumstance. Um, this, you, you, you have the right to make decisions based on your personal, personal beliefs up to the point at which you're endangering other people. Um, frankly, I would favor the revocation of the religious exemption, which is now offered by New York State for vaccination. Um, there's many states which do not offer such an exemption. I believe that exemption should only be offered in cases of medical necessity, that otherwise the public health interest is paramount. And that requires people to achieve, to receive a safe vaccine that can protect them against a disease which, by the way, can be deadly. Measles is, is, is no joke. Um, we have, thank God, not have a had a fatality in this current outbreak. But we have had many children who have been hospitalized, including in pediatric ICUs. And uh, even, even children who, who survive can suffer lingering health effects. You, um, this you, is not something that should be uh, trivialized. Do you foresee that the health committee is going to have a hearing to analyze the city's response and to consider certain measures uh, as a result of what we're going through? We, we actually are, are, are working on that um, right now. We do not have a hearing scheduled, um, but, but I'm talking to my colleagues about this with great interest in figuring out how the city can up its game, how we can prevent uh, further crises. Uh, I, I should mention that there are still 1,800 children in uh, the affected neighborhoods in Brooklyn which have not been vaccinated. So um, there are many, many more children at risk, and I think we need to be sober about the prospect of this outbreak continuing. Um, and we're approaching the Jewish holiday of Passover, in which there will be a lot of communal gatherings and family gatherings, and that, of course, provides the opportunity for an increase in the rate of transmission. So we're very worried about that as well. I think that may have been part of the reason for the timing of the commissioner's emergency order to get out ahead of the holidays, which are approaching. But we have a lot of work to do, um, and uh, we need to act aggressively. And I do think the city um, uh, needs to step back and figure out what we can do to disseminate the science better to make sure that every child does indeed get this important protection. And given what you've what you've just mentioned about the holidays and about people possibly traveling and going, you know, to different parts of the city, maybe going, you know, people right. go from here, they go upstate and, you know, Muncie, wherever it is. Um, right. This may be an extreme question. Has there been any discussion whatsoever of a possible quarantine? Well, who would you quarantine? You mean? Uh, I mean, like in the, like a, a geographic quarantine, or I mean, if there if there is a neighborhood where there has been, you know, that is sort of the epicenter of the outbreak, or uh, any sort of uh, travel restrictions, or having people show proof of a vaccination to to do something. I mean, because it just seems to me no, like no. again, it's just uh, you know very very difficult no, to enforce, and you don't want to infringe on people's rights, or you know make this into a police state type of thing, but no, it's people are traveling. Uh, no, no consideration for the kind of measures that you describe. Now, we do have laws on the books that in the midst of an outbreak require schools to refuse entry to children who are not vaccinated. And we've activated that in the affected neighborhoods in Brooklyn, and um, that helped slow the transmission for schools that complied, but there were a few that um, disregarded that uh, that order from the health department continued to allow unvaccinated children to come to class. And uh, that has been the major site of transmission. This is so contagious that you can be um, in a room where someone who was infected has already left the room for as much as two hours and you could still be infected. So imagine what you're doing to a classroom of kids in tight quarters where one or more is infected 
and there are other unvaccinated kids there. You, you, are, you are simply asking for the spread of this disease. Right. So and, certainly no, no intention on my part to, to overreact by talking about quarantine, but in terms of just right. stemming the spread of the disease. And then I have one more question, then I'll shut up and let Jeff get back to it. But one thing that we've also been hearing about are these so-called measles parties. Can you address that uh, a little bit and, and explain to people why? Uh, well, what do you think of that? Uh, I, I, I have to admit I'm not familiar with that. What is a measles party? Okay, so this is, I know this sounds ridiculous. Okay, um, when I was a kid, for example, before the chicken pox vaccine, um, if, so, you know, you were going to, you were going to get chicken pox anyway. There was just no way to get around it. So people would, uh, sometimes people would uh, intentionally expose their kids to a kid who had the chicken pox and therefore the kid would go through it, but then they would develop the natural immunity. <clears throat> because it was considered that while it wasn't fun, it was much better to get it when you were a kid than to get it when you were an adult, when it could it could be very, very dangerous. And there has been some talk, and I'm not just sort of, this is not like idle talk too, but there's been some discussion of people trying to do the same thing with well, that, measles. That, that, that strikes me as a terrible idea. You are exposing your children to a disease which can potentially be fatal. And the, it, generally younger children are more vulnerable. Um, and uh, we have a much easier and safer alternative, which is to get your child vaccinated. Uh, to, to willfully expose a child to this disease strikes me, strikes me as, as, as entirely reckless and indefensible um, for a disease for which there is a safe vaccine. Uh, I don't know why any parent would choose to willfully expose their child to this. Um, and my goodness, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure hoping this is not occurring in the five boroughs of New York City right now. That would really be quite outrageous. So, Councilman, since we have you on the line, I do want to ask about a story that uh, broke on, uh, if I'm correct, on New York One yesterday by Gloria Pasmino um, yeah. about your, uh, um, I guess, your proposed legislation on the ban of, uh, I, I guess, on the sale of tea and other products uh, uh, to minors. Can you explain this? Well, we actually introduced the bill already this week. It is directed at so-called detox teas and appetite suppressant lollipops, which are marketed aggressively to young people, often on social media, driven by celebrity endorsers, uh, none other than Kim Kardashian amongst others. Um, and they, they, they really are misleading young people, um, preying on the body shaming of this society, which tells young people, especially females, that they have to be ultra thin. And these, these teas, these lollipops, they can have negative health effects. Um, these, these so-called detox teas are really nothing more than laxatives. And if taken extensively over a long period of time, they can do damage to your intestinal system. Um, and in, in rare cases, can interfere with the absorption of, of, of needed medication for those that are on um, other important uh, drugs, and uh, at any rate, that's that's not a legitimate path to weight loss. Um, same is true for these uh, so-called appetite suppressant lollipops, um, which are packed with sugar and uh, and and use some some uh, herbal abstract uh, uh, extracts to suppress appetite. There's no reason a child needs to be on an appetite suppressant. There's no reason a child needs to be taking laxative teas to, to allegedly lose weight. Um, it, it has only negative potential health effects, and it's feeding uh, cultural norms, which put enormous pressure on, on, on kids, especially girls, to conform to the ultra-thin image. Um, and we don't want kids to be able to walk into any store in New York City and buy them. And so our bill would ban the sale of these uh, detox weight loss teas and, and lollipops to minors in New York City, not to adults, but to minors um, to protect them um, from what is really an unnecessary and unhealthy product. And finally, I heard you, because we've got only about a minute or two left, this morning when you addressed members of the Workmen's Circle, at the end of the uh, session, you, and I guess I'm calling it announced, that you're going to be uh, <laughs> announcing or developing a dual language program you know, in Yiddish? <laughs> I'm a huge fan of dual language programs. They're uh, taking root all over the city, languages from Spanish to Mandarin uh, to Arabic to Albanian. 
And these are programs uh, generally in elementary schools where half the day is spent in English and half the day is spent in another language. And the kids uh, achieve effortless uh, native native um, uh, na- native speaker uh, bilingual abilities in both languages. Um, but we don't have one currently for the only language that uh, can call New York City New York City its global capital, and that is Yiddish, with uh, such a glorious and rich history here in New York City. And um, I'm working with a group of activist parents who are helping to revive Yiddish uh, in secular Jewish culture, and um, we're working to, to launch a dual language program for this um, rich um, and beautiful language that's so much a part of our history and heritage in New York City. Stay tuned. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, City Councilman Mark Levine, and I'm, I'm interested to see how uh, how this uh, dual uh, dual language Yiddish program goes. Uh, and uh, thank you again for sharing the information about the measles outbreak uh, here in the city. Very, very important to our readers, uh, our listeners. Sorry, I got to work on that. <laughs> um, I really do appreciate it. Thanks for being on Driving Forces today. It's my pleasure, and Bye bye. <laughs> thank you. So uh, Driving Forces is about to come to a close, but I do want to remind our listeners about something that we talked about at the beginning of the show, the new More Than Mics campaign, because WBAI really would love your help to be able to complete a new master control studio. Imagine the sound quality being so much more beautiful. Uh, So it has been built so far by calling in a number of favors, but we really are in need of $10,000 that can use your help. So we're just asking 200 listeners, well, actually 100. 199 because exactly uh, because the borough president already promised uh, $50 $50 each if you just go to give to wbai.org or call 516-620-3602 to donate absolutely 516-620-3602 you can become a WBAI buddy that means you have a recurring donation you do it in the name of driving forces which you can find here every Thursday at 5 o'clock and as well as on SoundCloud iTunes and wherever you get your favorite podcasts thanks for listening i'm celeste katz here with jeff simmons and thanks to our engineer james see you on the radio coming up at six on wbai very shortly the wbai evening news with paul Rienzo. stay with us Saturday, April 27th, please come to a concert of Songs for Solidarity, featuring Mario Conkel, Lindsay Wilson, and myself, Judy Gorman. 100% of all proceeds will support asylum-seeking immigrant families now living with members and friends of the First Unitarian Congregation of Brooklyn in downtown Brooklyn. For info, please go to songsforsolidarity.bp. T dot M E Songs for Solidarity dot B P T dot M E. Thank you. On Monday, April 15th, from 2 to 4 p.m. and from 7 to 9 p.m., the nation's top seven young jazz pianists are in New York for the American Jazz Pianist Competition, and WBAI will broadcast it live. If you'd like to attend, we have 30 tickets to the afternoon solo piano performance and another 30 for the evening jazz trio competition. That's the American Jazz Pianist Competition at Yamaha Artist Center in Manhattan, 689 Fifth Avenue. 
More info is at AmericanJazzPianistCompetition.org. And the first WBAI buddies who email me, Linda, at WBAI.org, will receive free tickets to either the afternoon or evening competition. That's Monday, April 15th, the American Jazz Pianist Competition at the Yamaha Artist Center. Attend if you're a WBAI buddy for free, or listen for free, live over WBAI New York. As Mamiya turned 65 on April 24th, the mobilization for Mamiya remains ever vigilant to obtain his release. While his case is on appeal in the Pennsylvania Superior Court, we say the people united will never be defeated. Join the Free Mamiya Abu Jamal Coalition in Philadelphia on Saturday, April 27th. Celebrate the release of his new book, America's Favorite Pastime, Volume 11 of Murder, Inc. Trilogy. To reserve your seat on the bus, leaving from New York City, call the Free Momia Coalition Hotline, 212-330-8029. That's 